Good evening. My name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here, and I want to introduce today's storyteller. She is Nancy Dings, and um, I have so many things I want to say about her, but I'm going to go long, and I'm going to take away from my own sermon time, so I don't want to do that. But here's what I want to say. I've been working on the, our board, on our uh, leadership team with her, and uh, it's always been, um, I mean, I knew about her, but I've n- I had never worked with her. And here's the thing about working with her. Nothing ever surprises her is one thing. And uh, she always is, I wanted to say compassionate, but it's more than that. And here's how I want to unpack that word about Nancy is there's a way that, you know, when I hear news about people, uh, I go through shock or something if it's kind of a big deal. Uh, but sometimes I start to dehumanize somebody, because maybe it's bad, and I start losing contact with somebody's humanness. But over the, uh, all the different things we've talked about, I've never experienced Nancy lose touch with the value and the humanness and the needs of a person. No matter what the news, no matter what's going on, she's, it's not just compassion, but she sees the person as a person and wants to help that person. And so that's just been a really uh, huge lesson that I've been trying to learn from her. And I'm so happy that she's on the board, and you all should be too. She's just wonderful. So Nancy, come on up and tell us a story. Thank you, you, Peter. In 1978, Billy Graham brought his evangelistic crusade to Seattle and he encouraged churches to organize prayer gatherings in all the neighborhoods. They were to take place on Monday morning at 10 a.m. for four weeks. Our church really pushed for us to get involved, so I said I would reach out to the 10 homes on our block. But when time got near to the date, I lost my nerve to approach people I had never even met before to ask them to pray. So in desperation, I conned our 16-year-old daughter, Kristen, to personally handing out the invitations. She did it enthusiastically since I was paying her generously. (laughs) On the morning of our first get-together, I thought I would be lucky if anybody came, so I put out two cups of coffee and two muffins. I was so skeptical how this was going to turn out. The doorbell rang, and surprise, there were two people. So I greeted them and got out two more cups and two muffins. This was followed by more people at the door till there were eight people, and I was busy setting out refreshments. We listened to a radio presentation by Billy Graham. Then I said we would pray for the crusade and for our own neighborhood. But I assured them they need not pray out loud if they didn't feel comfortable doing so. So we started, and it was quiet and quiet and quiet. And after waiting for what seemed like an eternity, I prayed. I told the ladies that we would meet again the following three weeks, and I fully believed none would return. Lo and behold, they returned. And again, nobody prayed aloud except myself. When the four weeks were over, at least I could say I had given it my best. Not long after these gatherings, we were given the devastating news that our precious Kristen had bone cancer 
And at the doctor's advice, we packed up and went to Sloan Kettering Hospital in New York City for months of treatment. The most amazing thing happened. The ladies on our Southeast 14th Street all got together and prayed for us for months. They would call my sister-in-law every Friday to get an update of Kristen's conditions and her needs. They reached out to us in many ways, weekly cards, a Christmas tree when we came home for our Christmas break, delicious food, and after Kristen died, they were on our doorstep with many thoughtful gestures. The outcome was that the neighbors got to know each other and started doing things together like potlucks and pool parties. It really became a community. Well, you might say that was years ago. What's going on in your own life now? God is working today as he did then. For the past 15 or so years, I have been getting together with my husband, my daughter-in-law, and my sister-in-law to pray for our family. We meet every 10 a.m. every Friday. We have seen amazing answers to our requests. This book here has all many, many requests and wonderful praises, and this, isn't the, this is just one of the many books we've done. We have seen as an answer our granddaughter, who was born legally blind, now working for QFC Pharmacy as a pharmacy tech and handing out prescriptions. How'd you like to be one of her customers? <laughs> Two of our grandchildren who were not church attenders elected to go to Bible school in Sweden for nine months and absolutely loved it and are making plans to go back. My nephew, who was working long, long hours, and his office was very far away from home, well, we prayed for a new job, and please went closer to home. Lo and behold, not only did he get a new employment, but it was just five minutes from his house. He could come home for lunch, but I'm not so sure his wife thought that was a plus or a minus. <laughs> we had a severed relationship between family members where they were not speaking to each other and we prayed for a counselor that could help them come together in civility. Following the counseling session, they came out of the office laughing and talking to each other. It was a miracle, and this book is full of good stories. Some of you may be skeptical and think that many of these situations would have happened with or without prayer. Not all our requests have been granted just the way we asked. Our Kristen died. Both my dear brother and his wife, my precious prayer partner and soulmate, recently died from pancreatic cancer. But this has not kept us from our Friday morning sessions. The Bible says, ask and you shall receive that your joy may be full. We have chosen with the assurance of the Holy Spirit to believe that God wants to be active in our everyday life, and that brings us much joy. Our scripture reading is from the book of 2 John. You can follow along in your Bible or use the screens, and I'll be reading from 2 John, verses 7 to 11 in the New American Standard Bible. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. Watch yourself that you do not lose what we have accomplished, but that you may receive a full reward. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. 
The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house and do not give him a greeting. For the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. The word of the Lord. Again, my name is Peter. I am one of the pastors here. And um, I do feel uh, emotion that I usually don't feel on a Sunday. Uh, so we lost Ross Lehman this Monday, past Monday at about 7.30 p.m. He suffered a heart attack uh, three days before, and um, he passed. Uh, my last uh, substantial conversation that I had with Ross uh, was when he rebuked me a few years ago. He came into my office, and he was uh, wiser than I was. He knew the church better than I did. And uh, he planted a seed in my mind, and it really um, influenced the way I view the church and how I uh, went about um, after that conversation. And I'll always be thankful for God using him that way. We're going we're gonna to have a memorial service on April 8th at 2 p.m. That's a Saturday. So put that on your calendars, if you will. And I want to dedicate uh, today's sermon to Ross and to uh, Lori. I had a joke about Ross, and uh, I asked permission to tell it. So the joke would have gone something like this, but I just I didn't feel it when I first came up here. But it was, where is everybody? The Sounders are playing, and Ross is not here. And uh, I don't know, that was a joke. <laughs> there you go. A pastor's corny jokes. Okay. So we are in the series True in accordance with fact or reality. And today I'm asking the question why do I have to say the name of Jesus in this day and age? It's really annoying that I'm a Christian and I have to follow this person, this God that we call Jesus, and I have to say it into our culture, into the conversations that are in the culture, and the culture seems hostile to this name. I'd rather it be the, uh, a path of least resist, less, less resistance to just say spiritual, you know, to use that word, or to say uh, God, or even words like divine, but Jesus, there's just something about the name Jesus, saying it, that I get all worked up about it, and I feel the heat building up in my body as I'm thinking it, and if I have to say it, and then if I say it, if I get the nerve to say it, and then the reaction, there's this weird, awkward dance that happens right afterwards, because somebody said it, now we all have to sort of communally deal with it. It's hanging in the air. Now, prior to the year 2017, I've had issues with Christianity and with religion. And if I'm honest, I had it growing up. And I remember leaving my parents' church that we were all a part of. I really was uncomfortable with the way they used the name of Jesus. It seemed awfully convenient to sort of throw his name around. And they were hiding behind his name or misusing his name or abusing it. It just didn't land right to me uh, in my hearing. And I thought I knew about how they lived their lives, how they were parents, and I just, 
it didn't mesh well for me. And I think that was a big reason why I started starting churches. Some of you know that that was, represents the first 12 years of my life was starting six different churches. And then I spent the next season of four years directing church planting for our denomination. And I think part of my skin in the game uh, in that season was I wanted to start churches where uh, it wasn't weird and it wasn't embarrassing, and people weren't afraid to bring non-Christians uh, into the church or to see what religious people really like and how organized religion functioned. And all this time, I got to say, mostly I've been blaming other Christians. And I've been blaming the culture a little bit and just sort of their uh, pushback against organized religion and Christians and Christianity but mostly, I, was, I found myself blaming other people. And in the last season, I've really been learning uh, that I'm really the one with the problem. And I think I feel resolution happening in me personally. And I feel more comfortable being a Christian. And I feel okay saying the name of Jesus in a way I didn't uh, feel as free to do or as natural before. You know, before I felt much more self-conscious, like if you say the word Jesus too much, then you are a Jesus freak, right? And it can be seen as exclu excluding other people. It can be seen as being judgmental or self-righteous, or maybe people would think I'm ignorant. You know, you have your own list of why saying the name of Jesus is hard or why it's been awkward. You, have, you may have your own stories. Uh, but for me, I always felt like if I said Jesus, I was making a pitch rather than seeing the person in front of me. You know, I felt like I was picking a fight because it's divisive to say Jesus, like I'm going for it, rather than just saying something more peaceful like God or spiritual. You know, it's just this stumbling block of a name. And I thought also that it was a more recent thing, but come to find out, it's all over the Bible. Jesus himself said, I'm going to be a stumbling block. It's just going to be hard to be my follower because they hate me and they persecute me. If they hate me, they're going to hate you. And if they persecuted you, me, they're going to persecute you. There's a stigma that's attached to the name of Jesus. And I want to help resolve this for us a little bit today. And a lot of this is me just sharing my experience. But I feel like I've wrestled with this for years, very intentionally. And I think professionally, I've been wrestling with it. So uh, I hope this is worth your hearing. <clears throat> the audience that John was writing to, I think I mentioned this last week, uh, he was battling uh, one minor belief and one really major belief system uh, about uh, Jesus and God at that time. They believed that they had docetic beliefs, meaning that they believed Jesus wasn't really human, a human being, that his flesh wasn't flesh, that he was really spirit, pure spirit. There was nothing material about him. And then his believers uh, should then be Gnostic, meaning that they don't uh, believe that the material body is worth anything, that it's actually quite evil and dirty, and that you could live your life any way you want in your body. You could do whatever you want with your body or to your body and to other bodies as long as in your mind 
and in your spirit, because that's what Jesus was, you held the right beliefs, that you had the right information, you knew how the dots connected, then that's all that mattered in the, at the end. And then John really pushed back against this. And he insisted that Jesus came in the flesh. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, he says. Those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the antichrist. And then verse 11, for the one who gives him a greeting participates in his evil deeds. So John really tuned up the contrast and he made things black and white. It was all or nothing for John. If you don't fully acknowledge Jesus as God, having come in the flesh as fully man, then you're the Antichrist. And if you were to entertain such a person, then you also are participating in this person's evil deeds. So I think there's a lot here, and this is actually the, the verses that helped resolve some of this for me. It's like, it's, I still need some kneading and massaging to get all the, work out all the kinks, but I just feel so much better. There's been sort of a release uh, for me about this. So the two questions I'm basically going to try to respond to is, what does flesh mean? What does it mean that Jesus came in the flesh? Why was it so important for John to press this point? And how does it apply to us today? And then second, what does the word abide mean? And I think in these two words, flesh and abide, uh, there's some uh, promise of uh, release of tension for us. Okay, first, flesh. Let's think about this word. Verse 7 again, for many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not acknowledge Jesus Christ as coming in the flesh. This is the deceiver and the anti-Christ. And here's what I think John is saying. Jesus, the person of Jesus, come in the flesh, is not plan B. And what I mean by that is, he's not an afterthought. He's not a solution to a problem that we created that God had to react to. What the Bible teaches is that from the, before the foundation of the world was laid, it was foreordained by God that Jesus should come in the flesh so that he can die on the cross and bleed real blood. This was always God's plan. Always, before we ever existed, before we ever committed a single sin, it was always God's design to send his son, Jesus Christ, to die for us as a fleshly human being. It was always father and son. It was always meant to be God the father, Jesus the son, and God the Spirit. It was always meant to be that way. Humanity was never ever meant to be close to God the Father apart from the person of Jesus Christ. This is what the Bible teaches, that the proximity and the intimacy, the love, the trust, the giving, and the receiving 
from God to human beings and human beings to God was always meant to be through the person of Jesus Christ. Always. This was God's plan from the very beginning. The Trinity, as we know God to be in the Christian faith, is what we call a divine community. Reality itself, the very definition of love, is found in the triune Godhead. That there's a kind of intimacy and connectedness that they have, that they experience. And that has overflowed into the creation of human beings who are meant to be in intimate connectedness to each other, secondarily, but primarily to God the Father through the person of Jesus Christ by the enabling of the Holy Spirit. That was always God's plan. So the incarnation of Jesus Christ is not God's reactive solution to the problem of sin, but that was always the path for us. God's intent for human beings is to be in relationship to God the Father and to each other through the person of Jesus Christ. Always the plan. Now, that's what the word flesh means. Now, what about the word abide? Verse 9, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. The one who abides in the teaching, he has both the Father and the Son. Now, when John here in verse 9 says, anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ, John's not talking about the teachings of Christ, referring to the things that Jesus taught. He's talking about what he was talking about in the beginning, the teaching about Christ, that he came in the flesh. If you don't live, abide, dwell in that reality of Jesus come in the flesh, then you don't have the Father. So you can't get to the Father except through the Son. No one comes to the Father but by me. That's what Jesus said. And that's what John is repeating here. This teaching that Jesus came in the flesh is the crucial teaching, not just about Christ, but even about God the Father. Somehow we have to live in this teaching about Jesus come in the flesh. And that's the whole thing. That's the whole show, folks. This is what is going to help us. Let me unpack it for us, and you'll see what I mean. When John is talking about Jesus coming in the flesh and then us abiding in that teaching as a way to experience and be connected to God the Father in intimate, loving, trust, trusting ways, he's talking about the fact that Jesus can't just be a teaching in your head. Somehow Jesus has to touch your fleshly life. The only way you can experience God the Father is not through exceptional metaphysical experiences that you have once in a while. Those do happen, I think. But in your daily, everyday, mundane life, the reality of your personal life, you have to experience Jesus in it. 
Jesus come in the flesh 2,000 years ago doesn't mean anything to us unless somehow Jesus is penetrating your personal life today. Daily, deeply touching your life, your lifestyle, your values, your thoughts, your intentions, your motives, your incentives, your decisions, your planning, your relating, every single aspect of your life, every corner of your life somehow has to have the reality of the presence of Christ in it. That's what it means for us, if you are Christians, to abide in the teaching about Jesus coming in the flesh. Spirituality, as we might call it today, is not just a coping, coping mechanism that helps you live the way you want to live. But it's spirituality with Christ in the flesh means that you are inviting him into your life so that you're living the life he wants you to live. He is an influencer in your life. The Bible says that he is the author of our lives. And what that means is that he has authority over our everyday personal lives. Jesus isn't just a thing you do sometimes, like some accessory you reach out to, or something you do occasionally, like you exercise or you drink coffee or you practice self-care, or some habit, or you take medicine, or you have some rationale you need, and then you reach for Jesus. That's not it. If Jesus really is in your life, in the flesh, then he is the author of your life. He's not just some random engagement that you call on in, in time of trouble, but he's an ever-present reality of your life. Here's how... Here are the words that I was thinking about. Penetration. There's a way that Jesus in the flesh needs to penetrate into your life. And then once that penetration is happening, you're not just partnering with him, but he becomes the authority in your life. That means that sometimes your preferences and your timing and your wishes, they get set aside because Jesus has other things in mind for you, and he's writing your life. He's the author. And together, you are co-creating your life. Now, this is, this is a breakthrough thing for me, and here's why. I've experienced a ton of stigma and blowback with regard to the name of Jesus in my life. I have misused it. I have been dishonest about it, and I have abused it. I've misused it by representing values that Jesus literally has the opposite values about. But I use Jesus' name to state that I have that those, those, those values are not just mine, but Jesus's. I've been dishonest in the sense that I've used Jesus and religion and God as a crutch or an escape mechanism. And I've abused it. I've used the name of Jesus to manipulate people, to exploit people, and... Uh, uh, that's true. But 
the reason that me using the name of Jesus amounts to misusing, to being dishonest or being abusive with the name is because when I was using the name of Jesus, it wasn't an overflow from my life which had been penetrated by Jesus. It wasn't an overflow from a life where Jesus was the author of it. And it wasn't, the reality wasn't that he really was uh, sort of the person I was co-creating my life with, but I was creating my life, and then I was just sort of putting the Jesus stamp on it. And when other people heard me say the name of Jesus, they knew instinctually, they can tell that Jesus isn't really an integral part of my life. He's just an accessory. But I was claiming that Jesus was an author in my life. And they were reacting against the hypocrisy of it. So the problem really wasn't with them. It's not even with the church or with Jesus. They, it's not like they were stumbling on Jesus and they were rejecting Jesus. They never even got to Jesus because they were too busy stumbling on me and my hypocrisy because he wasn't penetrating my life. I was still just me. I wasn't changing enough. I wasn't growing enough. I wasn't humble enough. They can just plainly tell by just knowing me and looking at my life that I had way too much uh, uh, areas in my life where Jesus had nothing to do with it. It was mostly all just me, and yet I was putting the Jesus label on it. And that was the problem. So um, probably um, the biggest shift that I've seen in myself and in my life, I think the word that I'm searching for is the word humility. I think in a word, if I say the name of Jesus now, and I'm really, really uh, hesitant to say it, but if it really is an overflow from the reality of Jesus in the flesh, in my fleshly life, then then people experience that so very differently. And the uh, way that people experience that differently is if I've been engaged in this practice of prayer that Nancy was talking about. I want to tell you a couple of stories about prayer. Uh, just a uh, fun little thing for me. And this, for me, this is genuine and sincere. You may judge it to be trite, and that's fine, that's your prerogative to do that, but this is very real for me. Um, so for about 15 years, I've been running. You know, I started running in Boston, and then when I moved to New York, I joined the Roadrunners Club, and I ran a lot of races there, and I kept it up in Chicago, and I started running marathons in Chicago, and I've been running here. And um, all of you know, because runners can't stop talking about how much they run, um, <laughs> that I've been talking about the fact that I run. <laughs> And I've been training for the Boston Marathon. And uh, four weeks ago, as of ye from yesterday, I broke my big right toe, uh, which was potentially a deal breaker for the, for the marathon. But I pushed through it, and uh, I feel really great. But I was really bummed about this toe. And I just was feeling kind of uh, sometimes despair about it. And... So I just started praying about it. I said, God, it's literally just a toe. It just matters not at all. Nobody writing any history, even if they were writing history about me, 
needs to mention this toe. It's just nothing. It's a small, trite little thing. But for me, it's the biggest thing that's upsetting me these days. And it's really frustrating. And I just started inviting God to interact with me about my stinking toe. And then um, here's what's happened. Another thing, over the 15 years that I've been running, almost every long race I've been training for and running, I would lose a toenail or two. And then, uh, so every time another race would come up, one of the feelings of dread I would feel is about my toenails. I just could not figure out how to not lose toenails. And I did lots of research about this. There are other runners who experience this. Some runners get surgery to remove all of their toes, toenails, so they don't even have any to fall off, you know, because that's how aggravating it is to deal with uh, toenails that turn black and fall off. And so I was praying about this, and then here's what's happened. Over the last four weeks, as I've been trying to run on my broken toe, I've had to be very conscious about keeping my right toe up so that it's not pressing down when my foot strikes the ground. But turns out, you know how like if you do one thing with one side of your body, the other side does it too automatically? So I was running with both toes lifted up inside my shoe. But here's the thing. The reason I learned I was getting black toenails is I have this horrible habit of squeezing my toes like cramping down on the ground as I'm striking the ground as a way to push off. And that's what was killing my toenails. So for the past four weeks, my body has been learning to not grip the sidewalk as I'm running. And I've had no toenail issues. Like even I did a 20-mile run. Uh, Here we go, finding ways to slip these little celebrations. This is what runners do. You know, the other day I just was running and so I was running, I ran 20 miles, not one like pain point on both feet. And then I did the Mercer Island half this morning and no pain at all. And I'm so thankful. And I really feel like this is Jesus' personal gift to me regarding my flesh. Like my toe is about as fleshly as you get. And God is saying, I'm with you in the flesh about your flesh, because I care about you. And I don't care about your toe the way you care about it. I care about it more, because I love you more than you love you. And I really feel that. And there's a sincere overflow. And I was like crying, tearing up as we were singing, Lord, I need you. And I was thinking about my toe. (laughs) No joke. Okay, another story. I'm forcing my family to do this Lenten fast together. And there's six of us, so they were each taking Monday through Saturday uh, to take turns fasting. You know, and it just is so fun, and it breaks my heart to see the little ones hungry. And uh, they're like, like even literally crying themselves to bed sometimes. They're hungry, and other people are eating. And, you know, um, funniest, sweetest little comment that a young one made was, after like 15 minutes of figuring out the legalities of fasting, and we're all talking about it, she finally pipes up and says, "Um, what's fasting? Does that mean you eat faster so you have time to pray? (laughs) I just thought that was the sweetest thing. Um, But we're doing this because we, we are trying to discern a whole like home switch situation that we're thinking about. 
but I really want God to be a part of it. You know, between Peter and Susie, in our 20 years of marriage, we've bought or sold 13 times, right? It's way too many times. Like, who does that? And I can just do that. I can just sell and buy. But I don't want to. I want God to be a part of it. I really don't want to grip tightly to the idea I have or the tension I feel about the house. I want God to speak into it. I want a verdict from God. I want to hear from God. I want to hear God say, Peter, move or don't move. I just, I want to hear it from him. I, I sincerely don't want my will, but I want his will to be done about the silly little house thing that the Sung family is going through this time. So I'm inviting him to come in the flesh, into my fleshly life. And when I do this kind of thing, what happens is my own consciousness goes up about God's movements in the world. I'm just more aware of God. You know, I feel more centered as a person. I feel my values shift a little bit. It's not just my personal default values, but God's values are coming to the fore and rising to the surface. And I feel like I care more about timing. It's less about when I want things, but I want things to be right. And I know God only has the wisdom, that kind of wisdom. And I know I don't. I've lived long enough to know I don't. I want to be on the receiving end of serendipity. And I want my action to be meaningful, not just fraught with, you know, unintended consequences or something. I want, it, I want my punches to land. And the only way, and I think the best way I know how to invite God to come into my life through the person of Jesus in the flesh is through prayer. And so this is the whole sermon. I just want to convince you that if you want to be a Christian and you want to uh, be free about the name of Jesus, the only way to get through this authenticity-sniffing culture that we live in today is for Jesus to be very, very, very real in your personal life. And you've got to be honest about that with yourself. And if, if he's not, then other people are going to smell it on you, and they're going to reject your claims about Christ. What choice do they have? You're being a hypocrite. They have no choice but to reject it. They're not being mean. They're not being judgmental about faith. They're not being critical about religious people. They're just sniffing out actual hypocrisy from you. To the extent that Jesus is real, I think to that extent you give people a real shot at either accepting or rejecting Jesus but I think more often than not, they're just stumbling on us. They never get to Jesus. They're not rejecting Jesus. They're rejecting our hypocrisy. Now, um, I want to list a couple of resources for you because I found this to be really kind of, it um, helped me to understand this truth from a different angle, and I want to share it with you. Just a little side note about why I try to bring in resources that are not from the Bible per se is because I grew up under preachers who did a lot of telling. And so I remember 
telling myself, when I become a preacher, I will never be a teller. I will be a shower. I want to show you why this might be true. I want to present the evidence, and then I want you to see it and decide for yourself that it is true. I don't want to tell you that it is. I want you to believe that it is on your own. So three resources I want to mention. The first is a book called The Knowledge Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. And the author says this. What really sets human beings apart is not our individual mental capacity. The secret to our success is our ability to jointly pursue complex goals by dividing cognitive labor. Hunting, trade, agriculture, manufacturing, all of our world-altering innovations were made possible by this ability. Chimpanzees, for example, can surpass young children on numerical and spatial reasoning tasks, but they cannot come close on tasks that require collaborating with another individual to achieve a goal. Each of us, human beings, knows only a little bit, but together we can achieve remarkable feats because knowledge isn't in my head or in your head, it's shared between us. Consider some simple examples. You know that the earth revolves around the sun, but can you rehearse the astronomical observations and calculations that led to that conclusion? Of course not. You know that smoking causes cancer, but can you articulate what smoke does to our cells, how cancers form, and why some kinds of smoke are more dangerous than others? We're guessing no. Most of what you know, quote unquote, most of what anyone knows about any topic is a placeholder for information stored elsewhere in a long forgotten textbook or in some expert's head. You must rely on your community. If you are not aware that you are piggybacking on the knowledge of others, it can lead to hubris. That individual ignorance is our natural state is a bitter pill to swallow. He's a, Philip uh, Fernbeck is a cognitive scientist and a professor of marketing at the University of Colorado's Leeds School of Business, okay? And that's his book, Knowledge, Illusion, Why We Never Think Alone. And what he's saying is we don't know a lot by ourselves, but we feel like we do because we know somebody figured it out. They did the math, they did the work, and then they told us an answer, and we have a shorthand answer. Yeah, the earth revolves around the sun. Yeah, we know that. But really, we don't know that. Nobody's ever seen the earth revolve around the sun. Have you ever been out in the solar system and watched the earth revolve around the sun? No, you haven't. But we know that because somebody else knows that. All the knowledge we have is shared knowledge. Hold on to that. Another thing, fascinating, uh, Susanna Dicker led a project to invent a new kind of machine. She's a cognitive neuro neurologist, and she invented a machine called the Mutual Wave Machine. It measures brain waves, and then it translates it into light. And here's the fascinating experiment that she um, took 2,000 people through. They had one person talk, and then they had another person listen. And so when the conversation first starts, the lights are all over the place because the brain waves are all over the place. But then as the person tuned in to the story and we're all listening, the brain waves at first different and then they start moving together. And then when the listener keeps listening even more intensely, they actually 
uh, go ahead of the speaker's brainwaves, predicting what the speaker's brainwaves are going to be like. So the listener actually begins to lead the speaker. Fascinating. And her conclusion is this. The reason this happens is because, she says, we were meant to be in sync with each other. Literally, there's a signal strength between us. It's not just for Wi-Fi. Wi-Fi is an afterthought. Our brainwaves are always syncing long before technology showed up. Okay, third example. Carlo Rovelli, he's a physicist, Italian physicist, and I love the way he talks. I'm, li I'm uh, listening uh, to his book right now called Seven Brief Lessons on Physics. And he says this, that nothing actually exists by itself. Everything is just an interaction between different things. And even the thing that you think is a thing is just an is a, is a, a thing of interactions also. Everything, every single atom is an interaction. There's no individual, separate, autonomous thing, he says. Everything is in community with each other. His words, not mine. Now, why do I bring up this stuff? Because I want to show you that even for secular scientists, they know you cannot be your own autonomous person. You were meant to co-create your life with other beings. Your brain waves are not meant to function well all on their own. They're meant to borrow from other people's brain waves and be in sync with other brains. Not one single atom that comprises you is actually autonomous by itself, but it's all interdependent. And the reason I bring this up is because let's say you're here and you're, you don't want Jesus in your life. You don't want him to be penetrating your life in that kind of invasive, intimate way. Your alternative then is to just sync up with other people because that's naturally what you will do. Culture and you begin to look the same because you start meshing with culture. You don't have your own thoughts and your own brain anymore. Culture starts penetrating your brain, and your brain is just a function of the culture. Or if you have friends, their brain waves start penetrating yours, and you're not you as much as you think you are you. You start just reflecting the people you hang out with. And my experience is that the culture is not all by itself reliable. Its values are shifting all the time. And my friends, bless their hearts, are not as reliable and trustworthy and respectworthy as they think they are. If I depended solely on my family or my friends or the culture or other authority figures or institutions or books I read, I'm in trouble. I need somebody to be in sync with me, somebody to penetrate my flesh in such a way that they are the author of my life and not just me by myself. Please, I pray, God, do not leave me to my own devices. Please, God, do not leave me to their devices, your devices, the culture's devices. I need another person that's better, smarter, more loving, more powerful than anything else that I can see in my flesh to penetrate my flesh. And I'm telling you, if you don't, 
accept Christ and you reject Christ, you have to ask the question, what's the alternative? What's going to happen by default if you reject Christ? Even the physicists, the neurologists, they will tell you, you are not your own being. You are meant to be a connected, dependent creature. And it's my experience that Jesus alone is worthy. Would you bow your heads with me? God, we say with the psalmist, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God, it is our confession this evening. It is our confession this evening that we have been hypocrites, that we have been living like Gnostics, kind of knowing in our heads about you, but really um, resistant to letting you penetrate deep into every crevice of our lives that we have called you, Lord, but we have not let you be the author of our life. And it's our confession that we are the ones mostly at fault for the ways that the world has rejected Christ and Christianity outright. That when they have arguments against us, we mostly deserve it. And so God, forgetting about other people's responses, uh, I want to just ask you to help us uh, focus on our own uh, prayer. God, I pray that our life would be a prayer. I pray that we would invite you into our life through prayer. I pray that uh, from head to toe, we would pray for you to be an integral, penetrating part of our everyday lives. Really come in the flesh Help us to experience you in our flesh. And from the overflow of that real life lived with you, uh, there will be a testimony that's worth telling and worth hearing. So God, I pray that for all of us. I pray that for our church. Uh, come be real to us. Come be real in us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.